0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you please turn in the back of your psalters to page 53 and we'll read Lord's Day 24 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Page 53 and Lord's Day 24. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Answer, because the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? Answer so this reward is not of merit but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? Answer, by no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. On our series, Through the Doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, We have been seeking to understand what is the true comfort to be found from the scriptures. The scriptures are not, you see, to be read just to fill our minds with so much knowledge, but that we would benefit from the scriptures. And the Heidelberg Catechism helps us to understand our only comfort in life and death, how we're brought from the misery and despair of our sins and condemnation unto that eternal and true and sound blessedness of eternal life. And then, in turn, how we express our gratitude for the deliverance of God in our lives. And in the course of this great study of this important theme, we last considered the doctrine of justification. Justification. How a sinner can be made right before a holy God. How a holy and a righteous God can not only refrain himself from casting the likes of you and me into the eternal darkness of hell, but rather fill our lives with blessedness. How can he do that? Well, Through the grace of justification, declaring sinners like you and I justified, righteous, not for our own good deeds or works, but only because the righteousness of Christ is given unto us and received by faith alone. This is the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone. And here in Lord's Day 24, in order that we would rightly understand this important truth, you see how various objections are being made and answered. There's that objection that surely our works can have at least a tiny part, a tiny part, of our standing before God. Surely faith is important, but, but surely justification must include a little bit of what I do. Well, no, because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, as we heard in our previous study on that subject. Indeed, they're all imperfect and defiled with sin, so it is only the righteousness of Christ which can avail before a holy God. And now we come to the second objection that is made, the subject of God's rewards. God's rewards. It's almost as though the person speaking in our catechism is is just overwhelmed by the difficulties of this doctrine. He says, what? Do not our good works merit or deserve which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? The argument is, well, surely if God is going to reward us in this life and in the life to come, it must be because we've earned it, because we deserve it through our works. And the answer is given. The reward which God gives in this life and that to come, he says, is not of merit, but of Grace. And children, maybe uh, we can explain this difference between merit and grace in this way. You could imagine that if mommy and daddy came to you and said, I'm going to give you a chocolate chip cookie if you go clean up all the toys in your room. And if you go and you clean up all the toys in your room, And come back and mommy and daddy gives you the chocolate chip cookie. That's because you earned it. That's not grace. That is, you could say, merit or what you earned. But if mommy and daddy go into your room and they see that you took a permanent marker and scribbled all over the wall, then you know what? You probably aren't going to get anything that you deserve if you want a chocolate chip cookie. And in fact, it would be a grace and a mercy if mommy and daddy took you aside and said, that is so wrong. We're not going to do that again. And if you do it again, you know, maybe there'll be a punishment. But the point is, these are different. Merit and grace, two different principles. And for all of us, we need to understand this two different ways in which we imagine God dispenses his rewards. The teaching of our catechism is that these rewards are not on the basis of merit, they are on the basis of grace. And in order to illustrate and understand this whole matter of God's rewards, I've chosen a text for us to focus on in particular, but I also want to look at other passages So that we can not only vindicate this teaching of our catechism, but as well uh, see the wisdom of God in the scriptures and apply that to our own lives. And so please look with me at Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. Luke 14 and verses 12 to 14. Then said he also to him that bade him When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And we'll take for our theme simply God's rewards, looking first at the reality, second the reason, and third the motivation. God's reward. Rewards. The reality, the reason, and the motivation. I begin with the reality. We need to understand that this is a real Aspect of God's dealings with man. It is a real teaching in the scriptures that we are confronted with, and that is that God rewards, rewards those who do certain things. That is very clearly what we saw in this text. Jesus, he is there, and he's ministering to the people. He's invited to the house of one of the chief Pharisees. He sees a man who has the dropsy. That means he's retaining water in his body and he's drinking more and more water and it's just increasing his thirst and and slowly killing him. And so he's healed there and Jesus takes the opportunity to give various instructions to those who are there at that meeting instructions to people who are distorting the law and commandments of God. He tells them in the first place, the Sabbath day, well, that is not a day to be refraining from good works, but precisely for doing good works, such as healing. He speaks of that principle of of. Uh, glorying in self, of pride, that would elevate ourselves to the, the chiefest and greatest place at a party or at a wedding. And he rebukes those who would exalt themselves, reminding them that actually the principle that he would have them know is that whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And now it comes to this third lesson. Apparently, the Pharisees, or certainly the the one who had called this particular party, who was um, organizing it in his own home, he was only inviting his own friends, only his own family, and those who otherwise could pay him back and reward him with other opportunities and advancements. Basically, someone, he was only inviting people who would make his own life better. And Jesus explained to him that's not the way he should do it at all. No, rather, he should invite those who can never pay him back. He should invite those with whom you really have nothing in common, those who may have no particular connection or loyalty to, indeed, those who are disabled, unable to pay for their own livelihood, unable to even care for themselves because they are blind or deaf or lame. And he says, in that way, thou shalt be blessed, in verse 14, for they cannot recompense or pay back thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus, as he often does in his teaching, he brings our horizon away from the here and the now, the things of time and touch, and he brings our horizon unto eternity, that great and wonderful day of the Lord's return when he will judge the living and the dead. And things will be very different then. You see, when Jesus returns and raises the dead who've ever lived, and they all stand before the throne of judgment, things will be very different. Later on in Luke's gospel, he will, Luke will record Jesus' words in Luke 20, where he also speaks of the resurrection of the dead. Luke 20, verses 35 to 36. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now, Obviously, things are going to be very different then. There won't be marriage anymore. There will be no death anymore. No pain, no suffering, no. Nothing like that. But there will be a great reality in the world to come in which there will be these rewards given for those who do certain things. This is what is being communicated in this text. And so it gives us an occasion to take a step back and say, what is it that the Bible is saying here? What does the Bible say on this subject of rewards? Perhaps it's something that is not always emphasized in preaching and teaching, but it's an important theme nevertheless. We need to understand that God has revealed that there are rewards that he will give. And uh, staying within Luke's gospel, for example, Jesus preaches about them very distinctly. In Luke chapter 6, verses 22 to 23, he says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name is evil for the son of man's sake. Well, you might say, Jesus, I don't know how I can rejoice when all that going on. People separating from me, people hating me for your name's sake. And this is what he says in verse 23. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. This is why you should rejoice when you are standing for Christ and paying a cost for standing for Christ in the form of fractured relationships, in the form of separation from others whom you love. Well, rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. There is a reward waiting for you, Jesus says. And these rewards, they are given in a way that is counterintuitive to the ways of the world, to the ways of unbelievers who do not fear God. You could say that they also are seeking rewards. Rewards for their activities from other people, And yet the one who seeks reward from God, Jesus says, well, they have to live in a different way than the unbelievers and the ungodly. In that same chapter, Luke 6, verses 34 to 35, he gets into it where he says, And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. The principle there is that to receive reward from God. You're going to behave differently than those who are unbelievers. You are going to love your enemies. You're going to pay without any care about what you will receive in turn from the one you give to. You will indeed repay, repay those who do evil to you with good. That is what is spoken of here. And that is the action of the one who has hope of reward. From God. Paul also speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 24 to 25. Know ye not that they which run in a race shall run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And so the reward that God gives is not the sort of thing that will corrupt or fade away. It is something that is eternal and so much more precious. And if you would think about that one who is running a race in the Olympics for a medal or a prize that will not last beyond this life, then you ought I think that what you would do for the prize and the reward that God gives at the resurrection, well, that is much more worth your effort and time and energy. That's the basic principle there. Now, I think we ought to also tread carefully into another aspect of the rewards of God because you'll notice that our catechism spells out That the rewards are not only concerning the future life, but also this life. That indeed, God also rewards those in this life. And we ought to look at just a few verses that also speak about that. Look, for example, at the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, and verse 5. And we'll actually uh, look at four examples in the book of Proverbs very briefly, just so you get a sense of the importance of this teaching. But in Proverbs 21, verse 5, it says, the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty only to want. So it's laying out a principle There, of both reward and punishment. If you are diligent, if you work hard, then your thoughts that tend towards working hard and diligently will all tend to be um, rewarded in this life with plenty. Whereas the one who is hasty, they will want, they will lack. Just a very basic principle. And then go back to Proverbs 12, verse 24 the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. But the flaw, the floss, flaw, sorry, flossful shall be under tribute. So the idea is you have the diligent and you have the lazy. The one who is diligent, well, that person is going to have responsibility and authority and power. The one who is lazy, well, he will be subject to another over him. Going back to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. And Proverbs 19, verse 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. So both of those dealing with principles of generosity, one giving generously to the Lord and to the cause of the Lord, the other lending to the poor. And in both cases, the Lord gives this word that indeed the one who is generous will not Lack, They will instead receive abundant blessing. Now, we ought to speak a few words about these things in a temporal life, because we need to understand there is something called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. And what do we mean by that? Well, perhaps if you um, uh, are turning on a television to a religious uh, television station, you might find a person there who is saying, well, if you donate such and such amount of money to my church, well, then you're going to definitely get a million dollars in your bank account. You can go buy a yacht or whatever. And so there are these scam artists, basically, who will manipulate people in that way in order to get money for themselves. And that is is wicked and heinous. You could also find a different version of this where it may involve something like, well, if you just believe in Jesus, all of your problems will go away. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And really, if you're dealing with sickness or other problems, well, it's, it's really just your own unbelief. Or perhaps God is punishing you for something that you're doing wrong. And in all those forms, we abominate and abhor the prosperity gospel because what it's doing is it's taking these general principles that the Lord gives of rewarding those who apply themselves unto obedience to God and, and diligent labor, which are true principles, but then they neglect all the other teachings of the Lord. They neglect that the Lord chastens those whom he loves they neglect the fact that sometimes the greatest blessing that you can receive is not one of receiving money but even affliction can be used in order to refine you and sanctify you it and most of all it neglects that the greatest of rewards are in the age to come now, we ought never to despise the blessings of God in this life, nor do we need to shy away from the fact that they are, in a sense, rewards that He gives sovereignly. But we also, I say, should incorporate these other biblical principles. First, that God loves those whom He chastens and brings affliction in order to refine us spiritually. And second, that there is the age to come in which the greater rewards will be given. So thus far, I've wanted to simply say that these rewards are real. They are true, and they're they're biblical principles, and much more could be said about them. But I want to now go to my second consideration, which is the reason for them. You see, our catechism is very clear that the rewards that God gives, well, they are on the basis of grace and not of merit. God gives them freely, generously, and without thought that we deserve it. And it is not something we can ever earn through our works. And that is true for those rewards given in this life. It's also true for the rewards given in the life to Come. And if you would pay attention to the text in which we're, we're focusing on, in Luke 14, you have this example of um, these people uh, being instructed to call the lame and the blind and the maimed and the poor and to bring them into their feast without thought of return. And then the, the logic goes, well, you will be rewarded at the resurrection uh, of the just. And so the question might be is, well, is that really the way to heaven? Am I going to tell you today that no matter what your spiritual state is, no matter what you believe about Jesus Christ, no matter if you are born again, if you will just follow this basic principle and invite people and uh, have no... Um, I have no thought of being returned to you again when you extend that hospitality. Well, that means you'll definitely go to heaven and you'll definitely be rewarded. Well, that, of course, would be a lie from the pit of hell. And what do we see? But so many churches that fall into theological liberalism would say... Perhaps not that in so many words, but it basically boils down to that. Just be a good person, be generous, be kind, and then you'll get rewarded. Well, Jesus is seeking to not give any kind of wrong notion in that respect. Indeed, uh, later on in this And we always read every verse of the Bible in context, both the immediate context and then the context of the book in which it comes. Um, Later on in this book, you find Jesus saying the words in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. So likewise, ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say we are unprofitable. Servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now, there's the first thing that we need to understand about why it is that the gifts and rewards which God gives are only of grace and not of merit. These people whom Jesus is speaking about, they should regard themselves as the servants of God. They serve God because it is their duty. And because it is their duty to serve God, they must give everything that they have to him. Everything that they have, they owe to him. All of their obedience belongs unto God. And after they have done everything, every little bit of obedience, what is it that they say? Do they say, now give me a reward? No, they say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. Unprofitable. You know, that's a principle you could also take, even without any thought of sin. Take Adam, there in the Garden of Eden. Before he would ever sinned, He owed that obedience to God, complete obedience, absolute obedience. And in one sense, God owed him nothing, owed him nothing, because his creatures must obey him. They owe everything to him. And moreover, everything that a creature can do to do for God, it can never enrich him at all, never enrich God, never add to the glory of God in his intrinsic glory. Why? Well, because everything that we give to God, we've received out of his hand. Psalm 50 says he owns the cattle upon a thousand hills. He owns everything and everyone he created and sustains all things. And so When you would look at it from that point of view, you'd have to say this, wouldn't you? That any reward which God would choose to give can never, in a true sense, be earned from the creature. No, in fact, it is a gift of grace, undeserved and unearned. God is the overflowing fountain of all good, overflows in abundant goodness and blessing and rewarding his servants, but never... Never is he intrinsically required to do, for he is God. But here's the second thing, and it's it's really following with what we've already um, said in this series on the Heidelberg Catechism. But the corruption of our sin makes this reward impossible if it is on the basis of merit. If God would say, obey me and you will receive a just reward a just reward, then we'd all have to say the reward that we will receive is hell. The reward that we will receive is hell. You remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. And there, is, there is a sense in which You will, sinner, get what you deserve if you stand before Christ outside of his grace. You will get what you deserve. You will receive the things you've done in your body. You will receive perfect justice and wrath forever for your sins. That is what you deserve. It is what I deserve. According to strict justice, that is the only thing we could ever merit. And how dreadful and terrible it is when people take credit for the things that they do for God in the religious life. Reminded of that text that you find in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And maybe it would be good to just turn there briefly. Matthew 6, begin reading at verse 2. Matthew six verse two, the words of Jesus Christ, therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let the let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be done in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. Uh, to me, I think it's one of the most terrifying rebukes. Jesus is looking at these religious hypocrites who think that they are really something. They are doing religious things, they're giving religious gifts, and then they are proclaiming it before all. Oh, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And Jesus in, in that way just simply says they have their reward already. All the reward and blessing they've ever they will ever receive, they've already. Received it because all they really cared about was making themselves look good, and he says it's it's far different. He says, with the child of grace instead you do it in secret, and that way the Lord will reward you openly. but there we see don't we that the the character of the Christian is so very different it's one that's broken because of sin. You think of that publican. And the Pharisee, meeting there in the temple, there is the publican, rather the Pharisee, who prayed to himself and said, O oh God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, and even as that publican. I give tithes of all that I possess, say this many prayers, and so on. And there is that tax collector, a publican. He goes off to the corner, he beats his chest, And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, a sinner. Well, it's the consciousness of our own sin and our unworthiness that can prepare us to receive the gifts and rewards of God, both in this life and that to come. Those true rewards which come to God's elect people, they are received by sinners who deserve hell. And so as such they can never be earned by us. All our righteousnesses, as Isaiah said, are as filthy rags, heinous, polluted rags before the sight of a holy God. Not only are things we are ashamed of, but the things that we take pride in. If God would search us out, he would see their impure motives, impure intentions. And so any reward that we receive... Shall be gracious and not earned. Let us rightly understand this congregation. We take all of the Bible together. We do not neglect the teaching about rewards. We see it is in the Bible, but we never take that principle that there are rewards which God gives for doing certain things and then use that to overturn. The gospel of grace. Now we take all of the Bible and we see how it all fits together. That the one redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, will also receive rewards by grace. Now, in the third and last place, I'd like to move more directly to some applications we can take from this teaching the motivation. The motivation. I think certainly we can say that Jesus has good reason for teaching about these rewards. There must be a purpose here, and that is to shape and mold the motivations of believers. He talks about rewards, not so that we would ignore this teaching, but that it would shape how we think and shape how we live. Jesus absolutely wants you to think about this. How can you be generous and kind in the way that he speaks about here and do so intentionally with a view towards being rewarded? That is what he is asking you to consider, believer, and more than asking, commanding. And so we must face this. How is it that the... Prospect of rewards. Indeed, the promise of rewards. How is it that that shapes our motivations in the Christian life? Well, in the first place, does it not tune our hearts unto the heart of God? Does it not transform the thoughts and lift them up towards what God would have us to think about? You know, just take all the details of this text here in verse 13 when thou makest a feast call the poor the maimed the lame the blind and thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just jesus is holding forth a reward because he wants us to pay attention to something that is important to him. Children, I wonder if you've, you've ever had this with rewards. Maybe your mom and dad are trying to teach you about your numbers or your letters. And maybe what they do is they take some chocolate chips and they say, okay, if you can remember this letter, well, here's a chocolate chip. And Do you think maybe mommy and daddy are just doing that because we're bored and we've got nothing better to do? Well, no, no. Are we doing it just because we want to feed you chocolate chips? No, we're doing it because we want you to pay attention to something that we know is important. Important, knowing your letters. And so Jesus and God the Father, they are pointing us towards something that is very important for us in this. It's interesting, last week we looked at Leviticus 19, and it had various precepts and commandments that fall under the principle that we are to be holy as God is holy. And you had things that sound very similar to what Jesus is saying in this text. Leviticus 19 and verse 14. Thou shalt not cause the sorry, thou shalt not curse the deaf. Nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. Now there's a special way in which those who are disabled, those who can't see, those who can't speak, those who can't hear, those who can't move, whether through providential circumstances or, or something they've inherited from birth, those people who are disabled, they are precious to God. And the idea there is that to curse the deaf who can't hear, or to create a stumbling block before the blind, while well, it's an especial affront to God and his justice. God would have us care for and love the disabled. Surely it should always be the case that it's those who are the the weak lambs of the flock that are in a special way close to the heart of the good shepherd. And so, also for ourselves, as we have occasion to minister to those who are disabled, who have different afflictions and burdens that we don't know about, who are healthy and well, that we are close to the heart of God when we carry one another's burdens and seek out those who need our help and give it. Notice also in Leviticus 19, verses. Sorry, verse 33 to 34. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him, but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I didn't speak about that last week, but I'll emphasize that those two principles come together with Jesus' teaching here. Not only love for those who are disabled and hurting, but also love for those who are strangers to you. Interesting that the very uh, word hospitality... In the Greek, it literally means stranger love. And all the exhortations you see in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 13, distributing to the necessities of the saints, given to hospitality. speaks about not just caring for those who are in your family or your special friends, but those who you have nothing in common with. Showing the love of Christ to those who are strangers. That is what is close to the heart of God. And can you even see that in the parallel parable that's given? He talks about that great great wedding feast that is a, a picture of the Of the world to come. And he talks about inviting people to this great wedding feast. And all these people, they give excuses. Well, I've got this going on. I've got this going on. I can't come to this feast. And so all the invitations are refused. And so what is it? The master says, verse 21, So that servant came and showed his lord these things, and the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You see the amazing love of God revealed in the gospel. God the Father would have his house filled, have all the places around his table occupied. And he doesn't care how maimed or how lame or how poor they are. He wants them all there. And he extends that to the unworthy, those who have no connection to him that that would speak of their favor. And he says, not only I, I will permit them to come in, but I will compel them to come in. The burning heart of the Lord is such that he demands that sinners come into his presence and receive of his grace and that grace which will be realized in the world to come And what a terrible contradiction it is when we speak the words of the gospel and yet the heart and love of God is absent from us. Ought it to be the case that if we really understand the logic of the gospel, God's undeserved favor and love towards us, while we were yet strangers, he brought us into his family. And through the death of Jesus Christ, has brought us into the fellowship of all of the saints of light. And can we hear and savor and believe such things and then turn our backs upon the needy Can we turn our backs upon those who are destitute of God's grace? Can we refrain from showing them the love of Christ both in word and in deed? I think the clear implication here is that that is not possible. It is not possible. It must not be. Congregation, we are saved unto good works. And how wonderful it is that Jesus doesn't just say, you better do this or else. No, he comes not with threats, but with promises of reward. He says, thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Isn't it sometimes the case you do a really good thing for someone and you're you're kind of waiting for a thank you. You're kind of waiting for them to take you aside and say, thank you for doing that thing. And if they don't give you even a thank you, well, then, then maybe you get bitter. Maybe say, I'm not going to do that sort of thing for that person again. And then, then we forget. We forget that horizon of eternity. That we are not doing anything that we do for the praise of men or for the reward of man. We are doing that for eternity. And I, I put this to you, congregation. Not only does that t- tune our hearts unto the, the heart of God as His priorities become our priorities, but it fills our lives with joy. What would you think if you had a birthday party for? your kids and you, you labored over all of the different presents that you're going to get for your kids and you got just the perfect present and the perfect card and the perfect wrapping and you put it in front of them on their birthday and your child just sort of said, well, I'm, I guess, but I'm not really interested in your gift. And then they, they just sort of were ignored him. I think you'd say there's something wrong with that. Well, where our God and Father in his great love in Jesus Christ would have us to receive gifts of his love, given by grace for the works that we do to the praise of his grace, ought it not to be so that we should take joy in that? You give presents to your children because you want them to have joy. And so also does God love his children. He wants his children to experience joy. And so it's not wrong to desire the gifts of God. It's not wrong to labor for those gifts in the world to come. If you divorce those things from the glory of God and say, I don't care about God, I don't care about Christ, I just want my gifts, I just want my rewards, well, it shows you don't understand God at all. You don't understand the gospel And you're not a believer. But nor is it right that if you are a believer, you say, I only care about the glory of God and I I won't even think about the gifts and rewards that He gives for obeying Him. No, you should use that as a motivation. You ought to stir yourself up to pray, stir yourself up to worship, stir yourself up to evangelize, stir yourself up to give generously and to show hospitality and to show kindness to people who you don't know and who can never pay you back because the reward for you is infinitely greater than you can imagine. God wouldn't speak in this way if we didn't need to be stirred up sometimes. Sometimes even the best of Christians, the most godly of Christians, can grow discouraged, can grow lazy, can grow cold. And the Lord, knowing this in his condescending grace, says, take heed to this teaching of rewards, that your heart of love does not grow cold. How good he is to teach us these things, May we have grace to apply these things